Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do not dwell in darkness, but that with you even the darkness is light. And so we pray that you would shed your light upon us. We have been a people living in darkness for a year. And we pray that you would deal graciously and mercifully with us and lead us into your light. Shed your light upon us now. We might see clearly. We might hear clearly. We might understand truly. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, good morning. We are continuing our walk through the devastating poetry of Lamentations during this season of Lent. The author of this book is chronicling the experience of watching Jerusalem fall into the ruthless and pagan hands of the Babylonians. And the pictures he paints and the stories he tells are excruciating in their details and the fullness of the emotion conveyed. And in order to make the destruction of a city that is rock and clay more personal, we have seen how the author has personified the city as a weeping woman. It's much easier for us to relate to a person than a city. And so the author personified the city in order to draw us in and engage us emotionally. He did this in chapters 1 and 2, and he'll do it again in chapters 4 and 5. But in chapter 3, there is a change in his attempt to communicate the trauma of this experience. In chapter 3, no longer is the author manufacturing a personal component through the personification of a city. No, in chapter 3, we hear directly from someone who lived through the siege, fall, and exile of Jerusalem. It's a human interest story of sorts. Chapter 3 introduces flesh and blood, where before there was only brick and mortar. It's a similar tactic employed today to make a reader feel the full weight of some tragedy. The pandemic is a perfect example. It's, it's one thing to talk about the financial and economic fallout or to quote the number of deaths or new infections. It is another thing entirely to tell the story of a mother who watched her son die while still on a, on a ventilator or the story of a man who survived the coronavirus but lost his job and his home in the process. Or the story of a student who had to make the painful decision to drop out of school because they're dealing with the still misunderstood long-term effects that COVID has on our brain. Those stories make it all real. They bring it close to home. And for that same reason, in chapter 3, we are introduced to someone who lived through the fall of Jerusalem. He introduces himself to us in the first verse. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. In order to give him the room he needs to tell his story, this man is given three times the space, 66 verses, as compared to the 22 given to the other chapters. And with his first 20 verses, he opens up a window for us to peer into his soul, and it is overwhelming. He summarizes his position well in verses 17 and 18. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, gone is my glory and all that I had hoped for from the Lord. He is despairing. 
And all the more so since he perceives that God has done this to him. In the first verse, he adopts the common image of God as a shepherd. And this is typically an image of comfort. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Psalm 23. But in Lamentations 3 verse 1, God's rod and staff are no comfort. His rod is a rod of wrath. And he's not leading, but driving this sheep. Driving him into darkness without any light. This man experiences God not as a refuge, but as a hunter. He is a bear lying in wait for me, he describes him. A lion in hiding. As one scholar puts it, God is pictured at one and the same time as the one who has forced the traveler off the path by placing obstacles in his way and as the wild beasts who attack him when he leaves it. In verses seven and eight, God shuts the man in, walling him about so that there's no escape and and in turn shuts his prayers out, refusing to listen to any cries for mercy. In cringeworthy words, the man describes God as grinding his teeth on gravel and then rubbing his face in the mud. The state of this man is is absolutely devastating. What do we do with it? Which makes the turn in verse 21 all the more unexpected. After 20 bleak and excruciating verses, suddenly in verse 21, there's a but. But... This I call the mind, and therefore I have hope. He packs up all of his misery into that one but. And in the midst of his suffering, he begins to mine for hope. It's a dramatic shift in tone. It's also a shift in audience. For 20 verses, he was lamenting to anyone who would listen. But in verse 21, he's no longer talking to us, but to himself. As one scholar says, what we see here is a man in dialogue with himself. Still, this is not typical speech. He's preaching to himself. He seems to have taken the advice of that famous Welsh pastor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who encouraged lamenting men and women to develop the practice of preaching to themselves. He writes, you have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, abrade yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God instead of muttering in this unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, and what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to be. Lloyd-Jones is simply advocating for what Jonathan Edwards and others have called spiritual soliloquy, the practice of preaching to one's own heart in the light of God and what we know about him. This is not a discipline that negates the value of lament or prohibits that practice at all. But lament must be given boundaries. This was Eugene Peterson's explanation for why the author of Lamentations chose to use the form of an acrostic for his poems with every verse beginning with a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And Peterson writes, the acrostic form makes certain that nothing is left out, but it also just as certainly puts limits upon the repetitions. If there is a beginning to evil, there is also an end to it. 
There are only 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. When you have used them up, you can return to the beginning and start over again. But after you've done that a few times, the realization begins to dawn that that territory has been covered. Eventually, a corner must be turned. There has to be a but in there somewhere. And the practice of preaching to yourself facilitates that transition from despair to hope. In a recent article in The Atlantic, Tim Keller explains how this practice has helped him transition from knowledge of the resurrection as an abstraction in his mind to knowledge of the resurrection as a felt and lived embodied hope as he grapples with his diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. It's a practice that every Christian must develop because we will all experience sorrow and suffering at some point during our lives on this earth below. In verse 21, this man begins to preach to himself. And it's not an easy discipline to develop as is evident by the fact that even once he has turned a corner, even, though there's, even, even after there's a but in there, he still returns to lament for 12 verses beginning in verse 43, 43 before re-engaging in spiritual soliloquy for the remainder of the chapter. He goes in and out But with that but, the movements of his mind and emotions have been given a direction now that that he has changed his audience and he's preaching to himself in the light of the gospel. His grief is headed in the right direction. And there are four recollections that this man makes in his spiritual soliloquy that aid in his discovery of hope, but that also serve as a map for any who find themselves in a similar position. The first recollection is of both the nature of God and the nature of humanity. This recollection comes in verses 37 through 39, where he writes, Who can command and have it done if the Lord has not ordained it? If, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should any who draw breath complain about the punishment of their sins. You would not naturally think that the supremacy of God and the lowliness of humanity would be a good place for the person who's in despair to start. But often the cause of our misery is because of a distorted view of ourselves and consequently of God as well. We actually think too highly of ourselves, not too lowly. That's the tendency of humanity in our fallen state. We feel entitled to something and become angry when we don't get it, or despondent when we don't get it, when God doesn't give it to us. We believe that with enough time, ingenuity, and intelligence, we should be able to accomplish anything. And yet things continuously remind us that we are completely out of control. It's taken us an entire year to get a lid on a pandemic that no one saw coming. We think that we should understand be able to explain everything. And we get angry or confused when we can't even articulate our own thoughts or make sense of the mess of them. We put too much pressure on ourselves and we crumble under it because we were never meant to carry it. As this man reminds himself, it is God alone who can command something and have it done. He is the source of all things. He alone is necessary. And we are contingent beings, limited in nature, 
and on account of our sin. What we deserve is displeasure, actually, because we try to displace God in power, understanding, and rights, and we become furious, despondent, and frustrated when we are inevitably proven to be limited, imperfect, contingent creatures. And so that's where this man begins with the supremacy of God and the lowliness of humanity. It's not a hopeful recollection on its own, but it is realistic. And it sets us up for hope. Because the second recollection that this man preaches to himself in verses 22 through 24 is that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. See, this is covenant language. Steadfast love of the Lord. Faithfulness. This man is reminding himself that if humanity tries to climb to the heights of perfection by trying to be all things and do all things and understand all things, that we will only be frustrated and earn God's displeasure. Our only hope is not in our rising, but in God's gracious condescension to us, which he has done over and over again throughout the history of humanity. Despite our rebellious pride, God has continued to love us and has chosen to deal mercifully with us. And he has made that commitment to mercy concrete throughout covenants, promises, that he has initiated with humanity. You know, Adam and Eve made a deal with the devil and immediately regretted it. But God promised them that he would defeat the devil and set them free from sin and the influence of death. The world became so corrupt that every thought of the human heart was wickedness and evil. So God flooded the world, but he did not make a complete end of humanity. He preserved Noah and his family and promised that he would never completely destroy us like he did in the flood ever again. In fact, he put his bow in the clouds, aimed up at himself, as if to say that he'd rather shoot at himself than do that again. He then promised to make of one man an entire nation. He promised him a land and a people. This was a man of many faults. He put his own interests ahead of even his own wife. But God's relationship with the man was based on grace and not perfection. His mercies are new every morning. God then gave to his people a law which told them how life worked best and set them apart as unique among all the nations of the world. The people received the law with joy and gladness, with conviction, shouting, we'll do everything that God asks of us. But God knew they wouldn't. And still he led them by day and night through the wilderness as a parent guiding a child through this confusing world. God was their king, but the people demanded a king they could see with their own eyes. He graciously accommodated their request. Even though it was a rejection of him, he granted it and even extended it by promising the people would always have a king to rule over them, protect them, and establish justice. These were the promises of God. But at the time Lamentations was written, there was little reason to hope that God had remembered any of them. 
Like a serpent invading paradise, Babylon had trampled all over the holy city of Jerusalem. God had promised never to wipe humanity out by a flood. It appears he's going to do it by war instead. Abraham's children have been slaughtered in the streets, and those that remain alive have been taken from the promised land. The law was disregarded both within and outside of Israel, and their king, their king had abandoned his people and his city in order to make a run for it. His sons, the heirs to the throne, were murdered, and the king himself was taken into exile. There's absolutely no physical evidence in this man's life that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, or that his mercies never end, or that God is faithful. And yet these are the very things that he's preaching to himself. And in that process of reminding himself of the character of God and of his promises, hope actually begins to grow in his heart. It is an act of faith to insist that our circumstances, no matter how miserable, do not nullify the promises and character of God. This man hoped for the day when his faith would be sight. He probably never saw that day while he was living, but his hope was eventually fulfilled. And he now rejoices with the saints in heaven that many years later, God sent his son to fulfill all his promises. As St. Paul tells us in his second letter to the Corinthians, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. Jesus triumphed over Satan in the resurrection and rendered death powerless. That bow which was aimed into the heavens, well, it was fired. Rather than destroying the world again, God provided a way for life and forgiveness through the death of his own son. In Jesus, God has begun a non-geographical kingdom that is populated by people from every country, skin color, and language. As the man reminded himself in verse 24, the Lord is my portion. What matters is being found in him. He is our country. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly and he did so for us because we are unable to. And he is a king who dies for his people. He's always thinking of us and puts our interests ahead of his own. He lived in paradise, but he chose to descend to hell so that we could join him in paradise. This man didn't know it, but he was hoping for Jesus. Jesus fulfilled this man's hope and gave us new reason to hope as well. In Jesus, we have learned that we are saved by grace. It is his perfection that saves us and not our own. We must simply love him and live for him with a joy that is motivated, motivated by his love for us. And although we do not see him now, he has promised that he will come back for us and deliver us from these sinful minds and broken bodies and corrupt and unjust earth by giving us new ones. He'll make all things new. And the story for those who are found in Jesus Christ ends with rest, eternal peace. This is the hope we cling to when everything else seems to be crumbling and full of fear and uncertainty. And this realization therefore transforms the way we experience suffering and disappointment in this world. And this is the third recollection that this man preaches to himself. Everything is an opportunity to draw nearer to God. Everything 
is cause for repentance, even when the cause of your misery is not sin. For that's all that matters, that you be found in Jesus Christ when he returns. This man goes so far as to call what he's experiencing good in verse 27. Good? How can he call it good? Whatever it is you are experiencing, it is good if you view it as an opportunity to be reminded of God's supremacy, of your lowliness, his faithfulness, and that God exalts the lowly. Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, encouraged Christians to count it all joy, my brothers, he says, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy? Why should we do that? Well, he tells you, because there is opportunity latent in all trials. In his words, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trial leads to perfection. That's certainly one outcome. It's not the guaranteed one though. And so James tells us how to greet trials and temptations in order to ensure that outcome when they come to us. Submit yourselves to God, he says. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before God and he will exalt you. James is advising intentional, desperate, humble, faithful, penitent pursuit of Jesus in the midst of experiences that threaten our faith, even if we are innocent in the matter. Because God exalts the lowly and humble. It's the same call that goes out in verses 40 and 41 of Lamentations 3. Let us test our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. You see, everything is an opportunity to repent and draw nearer to God. But the fourth and final recollection that this man preaches is that he can't do this alone. Notice that he does not say, I will test my ways. Or I will lift up my heart and hands to God, but let us do all these things. The Christian life was never intended to be lived alone. That's what's made this pandemic particularly difficult on the life of faith. But even when we are not scattered by a pandemic, we must recognize, in order to push back against it, that we live in a, in a highly individualized culture where we avoid at all costs being indebted to someone else. We'd rather have Instacart deliver our groceries than be indebted to the Edwards family or any other family in the church because they grocery shop for us while we're in quarantine. We'd rather suffer in silence than burden anyone with the knowledge of our pain. But the words of this scholar are a rebuke and encouragement that we all need to hear. The person who through stubbornness or piety insists on grieving privately not only depersonalizes himself or herself, but robs the community of participation in what necessarily expands its distinctiveness as a human com community as over against the mob. We are brothers and sisters, not merely a gathering of individuals with enough commonality that it makes sense for us to meet weekly and sing together. The practice of spiritual soliloquy, preaching to yourself, is a practice every Christian must develop, but none of us should ever have to do it alone. 
Instead, whenever we recollect the supremacy of God, there should be a collective amen. When we recollect the lowliness of humanity, there should be an audible amen. When we recall his faithfulness and grace, his promises, there should be a resounding amen. And when we remember that God exalts the lowly, we should all join our voices and shout amen. Amen, amen, amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.